0: Welcome to a special podcast of Men Talking Over Beer. Today we're trying an interview format. And one of the things that we've been interested in, and particularly looking at men and men's health, is the whole nature of, like, PTSD. And uh, with me today, uh, we have Eddie, and we also have the person who we're interviewing. We've been calling him Baji, which i got to admit has got... Uh, shortened for barjas, and this has got nothing to do with the size of his rump it's more to do with that show from the early 1990s if you remember that Bajas segment from The Late Show for Australian viewers you'll understand that what we found as we went through this it made more sense for Baji just to talk so you'll actually hear we didn't actually say too much because he really created the narrative for us very well. So uh, before we flick over to the podcast formally, I should just say, uh, hi Eddie. How you going there, Sid? Uh,
1: I'm glad to be back again. I, I quite enjoy this uh, interview format that we've, <clears throat> we've been working on in, in recent times, and um, hopefully we'll get a few more out there uh, very soon. Something different to mix it up a little bit for the, for the listener. We just let Bargie speak Spontaneously. Yeah, it's hard to stop him sometimes he gets on a roll um you really can't get a word in but um i'm glad he's got this forum where he can get some of this stuff out and hopefully it'll help um also uh, sid if if anybody's kind of feeling you know a bit down and 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 needs some assistance um we'll we'll check in with bargie and ask him you know wh- what the best place would be to go and and get that help that, mm. that, that you know some of us need and we often
0: don't actually know we need it or we don't know where to get it. I think one of the things we should say to the listener is, prior to the recording of this one, we set a few ground rules up because we are talking about PTSD and we're not claiming to be experts at all. So some of the ground rules were for him to let us know if he didn't want to talk about an area, which we completely respected. Uh, We certainly said the last thing we want to do is by talking about PTSD, we didn't want to set off PTSD, so we established that before the recording had started. So just letting people know. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's get into it and see what we come up with.
2: There's a uh, a US comedian. He's done a, a couple of things around PTSD and everything else, but he said, you know, that the community itself loves. Putting labels on things. Sorry, George Carlin. Oh, I know oh, that name. Yeah. yeah, I know George Carlin. Right. So he's uh, he, he does a lot of very, very good um, social commentary, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He started talking about PTSD and that sort of thing. And back in, oh, I think, about 2012... Um, He did a fair bit of uh, support with um, veterans from the the Gulf War in the US. From a military perspective, what PTSD was originally identified as. Mm -hmm. Now, you you can go back, you know, prior to the 20th century or the start of the 20th century, where there were instances where, you know, soldiers had just desert or or whatever after being in a big battle, um, and then they'd get found five years later with no memory of what happened and all that sort of thing. Traditionally, a lot of warfare that was going on in Europe specifically tended to be fairly regional things with a lot of different countries that would have different alliances, and what we would term now tend to be more territorial or regional-type conflicts. It sort of culminated at the time because the British Empire was one of the largest empires and covered over a third of the globe um, around the Crimea um, and those sorts of periods of times, the Napoleonic Wars and all those um, conflicts where you would have a loose alliance of a number of countries that would either respond to a political imperative at the time, um and consequently they'd chip all their, their soldiers off after press ganging them into service. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they'd end up with casualty lists and up until World War One, um a lot of the war dead were actually just pretty much put into a big uh, pit along with the dead, horses and all the other uh, detritus of uh, war uh, covered over and, you know, that that was it. Oh, yeah, sorry, you know, Joe, Mr and Mrs Smith, your son didn't make it back from the war, but, uh, you know, he did his best for the empire. It wasn't until World War One where the Red Cross got involved um, and then now as we know it, with um, Commonwealth war graves and all that sort of stuff, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, the Great War was probably the first major conflict where uh, mental health and the effects of traumatic situations on the human mind was really well documented and really well cataloged. Now, You used the term earlier there of shell shock. Now, shell shock was the first descriptive term, um, and it was purely because of the environment on the Western Front uh, that was being experienced by both sides where they'd be subject to intense shelling. Consequently, you know, there's only so many days of that that you can take before your mind starts to go, am I really going to get out of this? So they had every, every sort of uh, symptom running from major tremors and you, you would have seen uh, some of the historical uh, films oh, yeah, over, well, over, over the years. Oh, yeah, where people can't properly. Where, where guys yeah. can't even walk, where, um, you know, some of them are just stand, sitting there with what's affectionately known as the thousand-yard stare.
0: Yeah, um, that's
2: horrific. Where there, there's just nothing
0: behind the eyes. And it's also um, a smile that goes with it that's really haunting. Yes. With that thousand-mile um, stare that you describe. Like yeah. They're, they're in another place mentally.
2: Exactly. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got things where, um, and people refer to them now as flashbacks um, or nightmares and, and things like that where they won't manifest themselves all the time, but there might be a particular trigger or no trigger at all and that person will start reliving it. So anyway, World War One was really the first time that this thing got a name, and uh, they use Shoal shock. As you go through the 20th century, and the more awareness that we got and the more socially responsible that governments and whatnot started to realise, well, this is something that we need to look into because... It's just as debilitating as a physical wound. World War Two, it was known as battle fatigue.
0: Yeah. From your studies, does this also coincide uh where there used to be a lot of psychological warfare that seemed to be a reasonably modern phenomenon. It wasn't really there like two or three hundred years ago, but it was certainly one of the bigger weapons. And I've read a lot about the Boer War, what was very clear though using a lot of like psychological techniques. Yeah, it's also known as propaganda.
2: Pretty much from the the days where set piece battles, uh, like Napoleonic type battles or the, the idea of those, and even up until the, the US Civil War, where it was just basically shoulder to shoulder, line of walk that way until the cannons knock as many of them of you over as possible and then if there's enough of you left you'll be able to fight hand to hand once you get to the the other guys once that sort of warfare changed they then started looking at well how can we disrupt their their support mechanisms how can we interfere with their thought processes and that sort of stuff and that's where you get all the grounding in psychological warfare and also the grounding in a lot of propaganda, which was quite successful for a number of sides uh, during World War II. That's called Trumpism, isn't it? Well, no. (laughs) No, Trump (laughs) Trump can't claim that one. During the Korean War, um, the term changed again. Operational exhaustion. Yes, they're recognising that it's an issue, but they're softening the language in it post-Vietnam, um, and particularly in the US, uh, obviously because of their involvement, um, and here in Australia, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder became the socially acceptable term. It's gone from something that's shell shock, where you look at the historical films and you see people shakes and unable to walk and that sort of stuff, race right the way through to post-Vietnam with PTSD, how much actual footage do you see of modern effects of PTSD? You don't because we have softened the whole um, issue. Having said that, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, after World War One, there were a lot of veterans that came home and there was quite a number of them that either took their own lives and it was just listed as, oh, it was a nervous condition. He came back from the war and he just wasn't quite right because it was very, very socially confronting that people in the mainstream just didn't understand that there was this thing called mental health. You know, if you saw a veteran come back and he was missing an arm or missing a leg, oh, yep, righto, I can understand. Yep, he's done his bit for his country. But the guy that's come back that doesn't have any outward-showing scars but isn't quite right was quite scary for for
0: the community at the time. And psychology, as we kind of know it today, is a relatively new phenomenon. It used to fall under philosophy. It started to become treated seriously around about the 1870s. That had some very embryonic phases, so there really wasn't the mechanisms to understand that till a bit later on as well.
2: Fast forward to, you know, 2020 and beyond, I think the community has got a lot more understanding that uh, PTSD is out there, and it is not... And one thing that I really want to highlight is PTSD is not choosy in who it picks.
0: Yeah.
2: I've got a number of uh, friends that are in a similar situation to myself where it's not related to military service. It's not related to their job. It's not related to um, a particular major incident. It was just something that happened to be a trigger for them. From there, that trigger led to one episode, which then led to another, to another, to another, to another. Now, you go to the recent conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq and, um, you know, the Middle East, where, yes, it's a defined conflict as such. You go back to mid-'80s, early-'90s, The government of the day and the military uh, hierarchy of the day, basically any debriefing that was conducted was, yeah, here's a questionnaire. If you've got any problems, grab a few of your mates, go down to the boozer and have a few beers, you'll be right. If you want to uh, fill out the questionnaire and send it in to us, great, we'll file it and, yeah, congratulations and um, well done on your service and we wish you the best with the rest of your life. They started to recognise that, well, okay, that's probably not a good approach anymore because PTSD was becoming quite prevalent. Um, There were, although the the figures or the official figures are quite uh, rubbery, the self-harm and suicide is definitely a major issue for veterans um, of all ages it's also a major issue for law enforcement officers emergency services like fireies
0: and ambos tow truck drivers from your reading of this is there a like a common like feeling why people do that is it kind of like is it like a complete dislocation from put this in inverted commas, normal society and they can never fit in is it try to escape the pain? Is there a common theme or themes
2: um you Not really. And, you know, once again, I can only comment from my own perspective. You know, and it, as you mentioned, um, when I shared some of that information with you guys, I went for a long time in denial about, no, that's not happening to me. I'm not. You know, I'm not weak. Um, I'm not going to let this define me. I'm not going to um, succumb to this thing. And it was probably the worst thing I could have done at the time. Um, By denying it and saying, no, that's not me. I'm, I'm different and everything else. It didn't actually get to the root cause and it didn't give me the opportunity to Uh, develop coping uh, mechanisms and and things like that earlier than what I had been able to. Yeah, unfortunately, that's Um, how a
1: lot of people thought about it back then. They saw it as a sign of weakness where, you know, we're we're a little bit smarter now. We kind of know a bit more about it. Well, yeah, and I think the other thing too, and
2: through, you know, conversations like this, there's more of a willingness of people to... Um under not so much understand, but identify, well, yeah, we've all got issues, you know, some issues that I have. Other people might think, oh, you know, that's that's just a, a trivial thing. But it might be something that means the difference between me getting out of bed of the morning or not. you know, and and vice versa. everyone in in this world has got some or will have, at some stage, an experience with um, mental health. Now, whether yeah. that be themselves, or whether that be with uh, either their partner, or their children, or you know their parents. But it will be something that will occur at some stage, either to them or to somebody very, very close to them. For me, the one thing that really puts me on edge is when people go, "Oh, I understand." Now, that's great that you think you understand, but I'm telling you now, you don't. You can appreciate the situation that I'm in, but you will never understand what's going on in my mind.
1: Yeah, unless somebody has experienced something like that, there's no way they can tell what you're going through. The vast majority of people that have come,
2: and you do, you, you... you almost have an epiphany, uh, that that moment of clarity where you go, you know what, it's okay not to be okay.
0: It sounds like to me part of it is, if I'm understanding you right, is like you're just talking about these feelings that are very, very real but took a very long time to understand and articulate, but they would certainly... Uh, be a major part of you at the same time it's almost like you know this other thing that was still you but kind of separate to you at the same time am i summarizing part of this okay to you yeah yeah no that's that's pretty close to it
2: um as as i said to you I've, i've got a black dog that keeps following me around occasionally he'll make himself uh his presence known to me Today, for example, up until this point, I'd just been going around, doing my thing, went up to Bunnings, did a few things around the, the house, mowed the lawn, pretty much mind in neutral, just sort of going through the, mm. the motions. And it wasn't until, well, I don't know, probably about an hour or so before we um, started the uh, this session uh, that I even started thinking about it. And I know that once I finish this, I've got a couple of strategies that I'll utilise to actually get myself out of that mindset. Think about where you've had the worst day at work ever. You then, and you, you catch public transport to and from work. You then jump on a train, you pull the paper out, and you read the funnies in the paper while you're on the train for half an hour. So Mm -hmm. you're actually unwinding on the train, on the way home, you're reading the cartoons, you've pretty much unwound, you've been on the train for half an hour, 45 minutes, you walk home, you take in a few breaths of fresh air, see the odd bird here and there, walk in your front door, completely different environment. And you've had that circuit breaker from that really bad, high, intense environment that you've just been in all day. Yeah. What happens if you don't catch public transport and you drive to and from work? You can't switch off because you've got to get in your car. You've then got to take into account every other bastard on the road that tries to you know, impinge upon your space, which because you've had that really bad day, you are extremely territorial about. You're forever looking, um, you know, green lights, red lights, give way signs, stop signs, um, speed cameras, uh, other traffic, big trucks, motorcyclists. You then get home, finally and you're still wound up and you're probably even more wound up, it will then take you a lot longer to try and wind down. Now, heaven forbid you've got a partner or a family waiting for you at home because they only need to say one thing and you will absolutely explode. That's the way that I sort of try and explain... What triggers do for me? It's just a little bit at a time over a period of time and then all of a sudden there'll be a trigger and you'll just, you'll either explode or you'll implode. Now, for me, I've got a couple of triggers that will make me just completely go off my crew. Other triggers, and I will freely admit, I've ended up curled up on the floor in the fetal position, crying my eyes out. There's still some things that catch me by surprise that I didn't think were triggers or they may be a lead up to a trigger. Somebody might just say something, do something, be wearing a T-shirt or a hat because of all of the previous little things that have come to a point,
0: that becomes a trigger. And the hat or the T-shirt's pretty innocuous, but it's just the build up. Exactly. Now- Um, and and
2: this is where I sort of get back to. Like I'm really, really. I mean, I I'm batting way above my average with my partner. She is um, probably. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll just say I'm batting way above my average for that. Oh, I didn't want to be the one to say, um, now, but Ed, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just getting getting in before you, Eddie. Yeah.
0: We've also said punching well above your weight too, so we've used that, uh, you know, expression too.
2: Um, uh, We had a situation where I started recognising my partner going through the same thing. Now, because of the, the nature of her work, she is actually at risk for developing PTSD. It was... Really, really hard for me to see somebody that I love going through and, you know, having that knowledge of I know what they're going through. I can't understand what they're going through, but I know what they're going through. And seeing that happen to somebody else and actually recognising it very early, for me, that actually was heartbreaking. We take one day at a time now. But when you have experienced it yourself and you start recognising those little things um, in somebody else, it it can then become a trigger as well. So I, I had a pretty dark time from about oh, I don't know, halfway through last year um, up until Christmas. And as, as you guys know, and the, the stuff that I've shared with you guys, yeah, um, you know, that the interactions that we've had prior to this, that has been one of my um strategies, if you like, for that unwind process. Um and I must admit, the the group um that I, I felt really safe being able to share that information with with that particular group, that that's one thing that I sort of really appreciate was the support that um you guys gave me on that. Um, you're going to have to, you'll probably have to edit some of this out shortly. Um,
1: Eddie? Yeah, yeah, look, we, um, yeah, it's it's just important to know that you've got a group you can be a part of and um, that everyone in that group, you know, is, yeah, we've known each other for a long, long time and, you know, it's just important to know that there's, there is someone there all the time. It doesn't matter what time of the day or night you know you can call me anytime you want. It's um, yeah, yeah it's one
0: of those things. And, uh, Bargey, the thing is I don't know you as well, of course, as Eddie does. Uh, but, you know, the most interesting thing is when I saw you in the other podcast and, you know, you're very switched on, you're getting right into it, you know, someone from my position with no background, no context would not have known this at all. And the first real insight I got was that message you put on WhatsApp. Yeah. Oh, and, well, and I was like, so, I mean, your downtime is clearly a very functional one in terms of like, you know, if people did not know after that, they still don't know. Yeah. I, um, and, and once again, this is
2: like tonight, um, and Eddie will appreciate this, um, uh, once we finish here tonight, I've already got planned out. I've got to charge some batteries and do a bit of maintenance on a couple of airframes that um, may have had some terrain incidents recently. That, that's going to be my um, circuit breaker for this yeah. evening. And then tomorrow morning, obviously, I've got uh, my normal Sunday morning activities, which is unlike some people like to think it's not going to church. Um, it's actually going and uh, flying aircraft. As as you pointed out, said you wouldn't have known. Um, mm. I got very, when I was going through my denial phase, um, I got very, very good at hiding things. Mm. Um, as, you know, a lot, a lot of people do when they're, to some extent suffering in silence because you don't want to appear weak you don't want to oh you know I'm 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 not the nutbag that lives up the road and and that sort of thing um and it's you a do a coping
0: you... strategy of sorts i'm not saying it's absolutely uh, a productive one but it's one of sorts i wouldn't say
2: for me it was a coping mechanism it was more of a, a way of not uh, admitting something mm-hmm. to myself and that that's one thing I got very good at was denying stuff to myself was no, nah, that's not me and oh no look I'll, I'll, you're just being silly and the, the internal dialogue um that was occurring at times you know staggering and you, I was catching myself having this full on conversation with myself um and trying to justify, uh, you know, why something happened or why I reacted away, and I was replaying, you know, days and weeks events in my own head and trying to to justify those particular things to myself or, you know, explain them away. Um, so yeah, you you do. And uh, look, I I don't um, look at my situation as a burden anymore um i did for a long time it was oh you know for god's sake this thing's just a, a chain around the neck some days i'm gonna have bad days
0: and i factor that in uh i'm asking this question again from a point of view of naivety but i can't help thinking <laughs> part of this could be neurological and what i mean by that is the parts of everyone's system that gets themselves ready for high alert. To me, what you're describing, it sounds like when something's happening PTSD-wise or a trigger, is like those high alert systems can't seem to settle themselves down. I can find myself becoming hypervigilant quite
2: easily. That's probably a little bit of nature versus nurture, uh, okay. in, in, in my particular um, situation and having a little bit of the training that you go through in both of those environments um, is very much around identifying threats, um, being able to, you know, work out well, when all the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, there's probably something wrong um, with, yeah. a, with, with a healthy dose of Occam's razor um being you know the most obvious answer is probably the right one
0: and what i'm starting to understand is like the nature of like uh, some of the jobs that you've done where you've taught to be vigilant about what you see about your surroundings situational awareness and so is in some ways it's hard to take yourself out of that thinking and again, I put it to you, I mean, do you think I'm on the money? Or I've got the wrong end of the stick there. No, look, you, you, you're
2: dead on. You know, the I'm lucky uh, in the regard that um, I have actually done a bit of uh, research myself in relation to the workings of um, the, the human machine, if you like, Um. The particularly in relation to um, fight, flight, or fright uh, reactions, where you basically get three choices: you either you're going to go the fight, you're going to go the fright, which could be a number of different reactions, or um, you're going to try and run away. Now, every one of those reactions is a valid reaction to whatever stimulus it is that you get. Um, Correct, yeah. I mean, after all, it's allowed our species to survive this long. The thing that a lot of people find it really hard to ratify is that they don't get the choice of which one they're going to do. Now, Mm -hmm. every person is different to the way that they will respond to a certain type of stimulus. So I think the the one thing that a lot of people can relate to is anyone that's had a close shave in a car, everyone will think about it seemed like everything became really, really slow,
0: like time seemed to slow right down. Can I point out that yep. on the Hume Highway about eighteen months ago, I was involved in a crash at 100 k's an hour, so I know exactly what you're talking about, right? Um, yeah. the, right. So that, that's that's your your perception of time tends mm. to,
2: in in a lot of cases, not all cases, but in a lot of cases. The other big thing is there will be you will fixate on what you or your lizard brain, your amygdala sees as the biggest threat. You will have seen reports where uh, robbery victims, for example, um, in armed robberies, fixate on, oh, the gun, it looks so big and it was this colour and it had this many rust spots on it and it was that. They can't tell you about the person holding it because their brain has turned around and gone, right, right. That thing, that gun, that is the biggest threat to my survival. You will uh, get what they call tunnel vision, where you will actually lose your peripheral vision. Your, your, Your one big focus will be on what your brain or your amygdala has identified as the biggest threat right at that moment whilst time has been slowed down. The other thing that you or that people have reported is they lose their hearing. It's called audio exclusion. Once again, you, you can hear about where there's been, you know, a, a, uh, a, a crash, and from your experience, what can you remember sound-wise during um, your uh, traffic crash? Can you remember the sounds
0: before? Um, I do remember the sound of the car hitting me. Well, like you said, how everything's individual... Just to paint a context, there was a truck in front of me that had lost its load suddenly. Yeah. And I was behind the truck, so I had to slam on the brakes. Yeah. And I had no position to change lanes, which would normally be your first thought. Yeah. But it was pretty chock-a-block. So I've slammed on the brakes so I wouldn't get into basically these barrels. Yeah. And then it was the uh, four-wheel drive behind me that went straight into me. Yeah. Now, the part that I remember the most is when time slowed down and that part, I remember that feeling of this is now inevitable, it's going to happen. Yeah. I just thought, I don't know, it was the instant thing, just relax, don't fight it. I, your body's going to move violently back and forward. And yeah. I thought, just relax with it because I'll be able to protect myself. Yeah. And I do remember the sound of it hitting me. It was like a bang. Yeah. I remember just the strangest thing. I remember was I kept my glasses case. I used to keep a little console mm. just near where the gear stick was, and I found that way back in the back seat the the next day when I was looking at the car, just to give an idea of like the velocity. It really hit me that hard. Things from the front flew right to the back. Yeah, and one of them actually pierced the back seat. <laughs> I went on like 24 hour, kind of like just case there was any delayed kind of like concussion. Yeah. And I did all right. And probably my next thought after that is, I didn't want this to control me. So I borrowed my wife's car and said, I want to drive on the same road. Yeah, the body's got an incredible
1: uh, way of protecting itself.
2: When you're in a situation like that, you lose all your fine motor skills, whereas your gross motor skills become a lot more effective. I agree with you there. For some time afterwards. uh, Did you have the adrenaline shakes afterwards?
0: Oh, oh yeah. You mentioned adrenaline. After that, I can remember I was still really pumped, like with the adrenaline, because I could talk to the cops and I was very, very lucid about what was happening and very switched on. yeah. And I was actually between two work venues. So I phoned up work, told him i had been in an accident. Police actually said for some reason my car was still okay to drive. <laughs> I think they made a mistake. And I got to the boss's office and I can remember not so much the shakes. I started talking to her and I just said, I can't explain this. I feel like I can go to sleep right now. I just felt... Suddenly, this whole thing, I felt completely exhausted. Yeah, coming down. And I said,
1: uh, It's shocking.
0: And I just said, Where can I lie down? I just need to sleep. I can't explain the suddenness of the exhaustion. Mm. And the doctor had actually told me it'd been such an adrenaline dump. And then it was starting to even out. Yep. But I'd had that much in my system. No wonder I felt like. Overpowering sensation of wanting to sleep. Point um, they did not know whether or not I'd actually had a brain injury. Yeah, that's mm. a very specific thing that you thing. can pinpoint
1: there. Baji, can you can you actually pinpoint what you think the major cause of your issue is? Do you, is it? Can you relate it to a specific <sighs> incident, or is it just a number of things? Uh, it's just. Uh, You you quite often hear people say, "Look, I I survived a plane crash," and I I have this overwhelming feeling of sadness that I survived. Remorse because I survived. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Can can you pinpoint one thing? I wouldn't say I'd be able
2: to pinpoint a specific incident. I know the incident that you're referring to, um, but I wouldn't say that that
0: you do because I
2: contributed.
0: Oh, okay. What, what are you referring um, to? Um, if this needs to be coded, we can edit it out.
2: Yeah, no, I'll I'll take that one offline. Um, yeah. But look, for me, I don't think it was one specific occurrence. I think it was over a period of time, I've probably been in a number of uh, situations where... Whilst it was part of the job at the time, you know, you don't, I I like it all right. I liken it to the difference between an ambulance officer and a highway patrol police officer. An ambulance officer, you would have some expectation that you're going to see a certain amount of health issues. A bit, yeah. of, a, a bit of blood and gore and, and all that sort of stuff.
0: Car accidents, you name it, yeah. Yeah, well,
2: put, putting car crashes aside, as a highway patrol officer, their main job is to make sure that everyone does the right thing and write lights to tickets. There wouldn't be a expectation as part of their core job that they will be pulling bodies out of car wrecks, the f- fire and rescue services that deal with major incidents, and you know the the rescue squad and that sort of thing. Yes, there could be a expectation of that. Absolutely. What what you will find though is that all of those groups will experience fairly horrendous situations and horrendous things that nobody should ever have to see. I don't think that they're unique in that. You know, it's the same as I don't think that the, the military is unique in that either. Everybody has the potential to be a unwilling witness to stuff that they really shouldn't have to see. Uh, Granville. Um, uh, the train disaster at the, Granville, the, the, Yeah, the train disaster yeah. there, um, but the recent anniversary of that. You know, that, that's probably a really good example where there were a lot of people at Granville that witnessed that that should never have had to. There was a lot of people that were in that train that should never have had to go through that and, and what they did and all the emergency services and that sort of stuff. So for me, my situation, whilst... I can't really pinpoint it to one particular uh, incident. I think it was a combination of a number of them and a number of environments that I happened to be working in at the time. And I, I don't think that that's any different to some other people. I mean, I've got friends that, yes, they can say that this is the point that it took me over the edge because they were then removed from that environment. I've never been or I've never actually removed myself from an an environment because of a particular situation. Um, So that's why I can't really sort of point to, well, yes, it was on this day at this time when this happened that I can point to, and I think it's more of a uh, conglomerate effect if you like, of different experiences that I had over the years and that I still have now, but whilst I'm not in those similar sorts of environments anymore.
0: It's definitely got some aspects of conditioning to it. I've found myself in situations where,
2: because uh, I, I rode, ride uh, a motorcycle, I've been in situations where I've gone from point A to point B and I can't remember the journey.
0: Because Can my, I just say... That can yep. happen to me on the way to work because my head's very busy with my to-do list. Yes. yeah. Well, and I've looked I... at the car and gone, I don't remember driving here. So yeah, we can I think do we've things on autopilot. Even... Yeah, times well, where well, I've, I've driven
1: on... long distances and not remember the whole journey just because your mind's somewhere yeah. else. Oh, I've actually done a bit of research on that and it's
2: where your brain goes into beta state. Your subconscious basically turns around and goes, right, I need to get some more environmental information or I've got to mull over, like as you've said, um, Sid, uh, your work list for the day. Yeah. Where yeah. it's gone, yep, okay, you know, alpha state, you just look after the, the, uh, the driving process. I've got more important work to do. And basically your brain has gone, all right, I can do two things at once here and starts multitasking. The problem is, is it can actually degrade things like your short-term memory and and those sorts of things of that particular task. But it's interesting, and I'm sure both of you can relate to this because I know you've got kids. When your kids were young, they'll be walking along and they'll run into a a post or they'll run into something. Yeah. Because their brain is just like a a big grey sponge and it's forever in, in beta state where it's just sucking in all the input that it can from the environment in, in that learning process. The other one is when your kids were really young, it would have been or up until about, I think, 12 or 13, would have been really easy to sneak up on them.
0: Do you know why? Oh, I can actually think of uh, a couple of explanations, but... Uh... I'm trying to remember this thing. I remember doing at uni. It's something like selective perception. It's not quite the right term there. Where sometimes if a person is focused on one thing, it's very hard for them to do another properly. And kids can be engrossed in what they're looking at, and you can introduce a different stimuli, and they're not ready for it, or they can't comprehend it right. We can get that as adults as well. <laughs> tests you see for that are often like Stroop tests in psychology. The actual
2: one of the more prevalent reasons for it is it's not until you're 12 or 13 that you actually develop peripheral vision. Is that right? Oh, okay. Which is really cool if you've got kids under that age, because it means you can sneak up on them really easy. Up until about that point, your brain is always wanting to be, as you said, uh, focused, intensely focused on what it's doing. So it can suck as much environmental information and and that sort of thing in on that particular task. And Uh, i just
0: think, just watch kids play Xbox or something like that, PlayStation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the world doesn't exist outside of that, does it? No. Mm. God, no. It's interesting, too, because some of my hunches on this and the way you described it, I Mm. felt like I've sussed it out, you know, reasonably well. Uh, like what I thought, but I also know how individualistic it is. And with my job, I've actually come across where I've actually had to deal with people who've been formally diagnosed with it. And, you know, when you said, look, uh, it's not just like the outburst, it can be the depression, it can be the anxiety. Yeah. And for me, it's been a great reinforcer, especially the bit about the triggers, the conditioning, but also how individualistic it can be. Yeah. Oh man, this has been absolutely eye opening, fascinating. Yeah, I, I knew it would uh, be. Sid and I are um, <laughs> we kind of we've got this little
1: breakaway group from the the men talking over beer where we do basically one on one interviews or, or two on one interviews or, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, we've had some success with but that. We found so we've...
0: that we've also found that Carson gives us PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> no, we can't. can't take all that credit. <laughs> <laughs> do you know the
2: bloke? No. Oh, although, just although, although I know the perspective, yes. because you know the
0: reputation,
2: because I have I have listened to all of your men over beer or men talking over beer podcasts. Oh, that's tame version. Mm. Yeah, oh, I'm sure it is, but I think he's more in the doghouse than he is in the house house. <laughs> it
0: would appear so, at least recently. <laughs> He's the only person who could possibly sue himself because he damages his own reputation. That's got to be cut out, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've got a very interesting question that's left of centre. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Is I'm there all, such I'm... a thing as a PTSD joke that people with PTSD can tell each other?
2: Not really. Not, uh, not that I've really come across. Whilst the community is a lot more cognizant of PTSD and Mm -hmm. mental health in general, I think it's still, uh, well, it doesn't really affect me, so I don't want to know about it. And I don't want to acknowledge it because I think probably the, the one thing that I will say and probably my biggest thing in relation to PTSD or any sort of mental health is Denial is probably the biggest threat that the community yeah. and sufferers of any of any sort of mental health have got because by denying it or trying to ignore it, it doesn't address the, the issue. It doesn't make people that are suffering through it feel any better and, in fact, can make them feel a little bit marginalised or ignored or forgotten. Which is also another really, really bad thing. But in so far as the humour side of it, probably the only humour that I've seen attached to it is, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the US comedian. Oh, the that, comedian, Carlin, Carlin. Yeah, Carlin, that did, well, it wasn't so much a, a routine, it was more of a, a social commentary on it that people could relate to and I think with my personal opinion once people can relate to it and in a lot of cases people tend to relate to things through humour we'll be a lot better off but at the moment I think whilst yes we recognise that it's an issue Mm -hmm. there's a lot more recognition of the requirement for support mechanisms the provision of those support mechanisms still leaves a bit to be desired, but the recognition that they're needed, well, I think, is probably the the, uh, the biggest step that particularly our our governments have, have taken. The other recognition, this is purely from my perspective of, as a veteran, you can't expect young people that are motivated to provide service, um, the country and the community. And then once they leave, you can't expect them to then just get on with what is termed as a normal life regardless and, and just sort of leave them on the, the, the um, you know, fend-for-yourself pile. The little things at times actually do make a difference. And one of the things for me probably makes a big difference was when I received that.
0: Okay.
1: So, for, that's for a our listener card at home, Raji um, is audio. holding up a, a
2: veteran's yeah. card. In the top left hand corner, it just simply says specific conditions. Now, apart from a PTSD, I've got a few other physical issues, but that gives me some form of recognition. And in a lot of cases, it's like the old adage of a thank you costs you nothing. The day that I got that, was probably one of the cathartic moments in my whole experience that I've gone through in that, okay, I've got some recognition that I'm not alone and that people do realise that, yes, there is something going on. You know, it's just that it may not mean a lot to other people, but to people such as myself, at times, struggle. Just knowing that, yes, you've got that little bit of recognition or that, you know, thank you, that
0: can mean the difference between you getting out of bed one morning and not. Absolutely. You know, uh, for me, I'm taking this on board from a different point of view. by. elder son is four years into the military and uh, I know that he will like me to keep some of the details very vague because he's often asked me to do that yeah. but to say has he actually fought like active duty no but has he been standby yes and has he trained in some other countries yes and has he had these kind of existentialist crises I think it's a fair thing to say yes I think that's what happened when you confronted with the type of job that he's had to do. So for me, I'm just watching him. I think he's doing extremely well for himself, but one of the best things that's happened since he's done that is how openly we can talk now. Yeah. Look, because uh, I just don't want him to be scarred. And you, you know, as a, you, you, you love your son, even when they're 30, 40, 50, you know, you just, you're always their dad. Yep. That's right. You know, I
2: can remember as a kid, you know, particularly on Anzac Day and things like that, where you'd see the the guys from the Great War, from World War II, Korea, uh, Vietnam, um, and that sort of thing, where you'd you'd see them marching and, and, and that sort of thing. And you didn't really understand it very much as a kid, apart from, oh, you know, seeing all these guys marching. I think over time, there had been some quite divisive. Comments made about different types and particular uh, different conflicts. And I think in the 80s, when the government of the day actually turned around and had a formal welcome back parade for Vietnam veterans, Mm -hmm. that was probably the start of recognition. It doesn't matter whether you were a Great War veteran. A World War II veteran, uh, somebody that served between the two wars, somebody that served in Korea, somebody that went to uh, Mozambique uh, during the, uh, the UN intervention there, whether you ended up in the Western Sahara as part of the UN deployment or Cambodia or um, uh, Namibia, uh, Vietnam, all those sorts of things. It wasn't until that. Uh, welcome home parade that those guys so desperately deserved because in a lot of cases, a lot of those guys didn't get the choice. I was a volunteer. I wouldn't know how to deal with it if I was a conscript that had different feelings and that sort of thing about a particular thing and was forced by my government to go perform in an extension of their political agenda through that sort of process. I don't make any claims at all to even being able to understand what those those guys went through. And I think they were really hard done by, particularly by the general veteran community up until that point, because up until that point there was quite a stigma around Vietnam. And that stigma still hung around and, and a lot of guys reacted bad to that stigma. A lot of guys basically ignored it and, and a lot of guys turned around and just said, well, yeah, just I'm, I'm not going to even engage in it. I think since that time, though, we have come a long way. For me, there is no differentiation between somebody that has gone and performed their job in the military, whether it be in an active war zone, in a declared war, in a UN peacekeeping mission, or whether they were in the military at the time where there was nothing going on. For me, there is no distinction on Mm. what this country and the community owes to them. Nor should they be. They're all in the same boat. The RSL... I must say, has come a long way in that regard. You know, all all you've got to look at is go to the War Memorial in Canberra and have as you walk in the front door, have a look on the right-hand side area of remembrance where all the names are. There is recognition there for all of our servicemen and women that have paid the ultimate sacrifice, regardless of what particular conflict was or peacekeeping role. The issue that I have is where you will get a certain group of self-appointed individuals that will say, oh well, you know, you weren't in this war, so your service doesn't count, or oh, you only did peacekeeping, or oh, you know, you you only loaded the boats to supply the guys that went to X and Y and this, that, and the other. I'm sorry, but without all of those people, that particular thing wouldn't have occurred. Yes, there are different roles in the military. Some of them are more risky than others. You know, that's the nature of the job. But at the end of the day, I will never ever differentiate between anyone that has served just because of the grounds of, oh, well, you know, you you haven't got this particular tick in your book or or whatever. You know, they have volunteered to serve their country and their community. And I think at the end of the day, that should be recognised.
0: Very well said. Yeah, and I totally think agree. too. I think I know this and probably uh, you're the same, Eddie. I mean, apart from that being very well said, I think we all recognise that a military personnel, they do the bidding of their governments. Absolutely. It's not exactly their decision. Yeah. Yeah. So whether it's a peacekeeping role here, uh, direct you know conflict zone there kind of thing, they sign up to basically in some ways do the bidding of the the politics of the government at the time. Look, you mentioned uh, before yeah. uh, about um, support mechanisms and and so on.
1: If anybody, if anybody out there um, thinks they may have. PTSD or is showing any symptoms at all, where can they go to get help? Um, I think probably the the first
2: port of call is uh, the Lifeline uh, number. They are very, very well-trained and able to uh, deal with uh, or provide uh, advice over the phone. And it's, it's a national number, so no matter where you are, Uh, call 131114 and uh, talk to one of their operators there and they'll be able to, you know, even if you just need somebody to talk to, they are more than able to to assist.
1: And they're also Um, available to um, pass you on to other agencies as well if, if they require further help. I'll actually have all these numbers collated and put into the show notes for us. So you'll be able to look at the show notes later and get those numbers. The other the other one I will highlight, though,
2: is they've also got a Lifeline text service. Oh, okay. Which is an SMS-based crisis support service. So you you can receive support by text message. So if, if there's a situation or whatever where you can't actually make voice contact, they do have a, a text service that is available nightly. And that number
0: is 0477-131114. one probably the thing that I've got to uh, really say, and you know, i learnt this particularly from my son, is uh, from me, and uh, I'll let Eddie speak for himself, thank you for your service. Absolutely. It, believe me, it, it is
1: appreciated. Yeah, look, I, I come from a family, as you know, Bhaji, a, a lot of my brothers and... Uh... My dad served as well, and, um, yeah, I had a little stint in the Army Reserve myself. So, yeah, we know uh, probably a little more than, than Joe Public, but um, certainly not as much as we could. Thanks Aye. for your service. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. I
0: have to say, Bargie, this has been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully we can have you back again. Thank you for the invite,
2: and, um, you know, as I said, It's, you know, you you just take these things day to day and I I do find these sorts of things quite therapeutic. You know, I I don't let a four-letter acronym define me. I appreciate that other people uh, are going through a similar situation to what I am and I just hope that, you know, something like this can let them know that they aren't alone as well.
0: So if anybody wants to drop us a line, Sid, uh, where can they do that? Uh, there is a Facebook page. You'll see us under Men Talking Over Beer. So first I want to... Uh, mention that but we also have an email and uh, men talking over beer at gmail.com and uh, please uh, with a topic like this of course we'll treat this with discretion Uh, if it's the kind of thing where you do need to get those numbers again of course we'll pass those on to you. We tend to to do stuff on on more of the the lighter side but um, you
1: know sometimes you know we're presented with an opportunity like this and we just thought we couldn't pass it up, I mean, uh, the opportunity to have Bargie on, um, I don't know if anybody out there can recognise his voice, he's part of our um, Goodies podcast, that is uh, shortly to go into season two there as well, so um, you'll be able to hear Bargie there, and um, he's one fan in Botswana, huh? yeah, one in Botswana, yeah. <laughs> if the listener wants really to find like out to... more about Bargie where can they find him? I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, rest assured that this will not be forwarded, Carson. That's given me PTSD
0: already. Absolutely. I'm shaking. Just (laughs) thinking about it.